Today's scripture reading comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 15, verses 10 through 23. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. This is the word of our God. For the past uh, month and a half, we've been looking at passages throughout the Bible. And uh, we've been saying that we grew up with a lot of these texts, and we're trying to make sense of them now. Uh, In the gospel context, what do these passages actually mean? And uh, that's what the series is about, if you're new or visiting Metro Press today. Uh, First and Second Samuel gives us a pivotal understanding of the kingdom of God. It's pivotal in the Bible, in our understanding of the Bible, because it's all about God's people now being brought together, established as a kingdom. And this chapter is about Saul, King Saul, the first king of Israel. Saul eventually, as you see here, he, he starts to change. He becomes power-hungry, and he becomes this abusive tyrant. But that's not really how he starts out. Uh, he doesn't start out like that. If you read the first part of 1 Samuel, leading up to this portion, this passage here, uh, Saul is an attractive leader. He is a religious person. He comes from a good family. He's trained and educated. It's all the things that we look for when we look for good friends, when we look for good neighbors, a good spouse. In fact, Saul is even incredibly humble at first, and he's wise, and he's sparing as a king. He's merciful as a king, but his life starts to spiral. 
and it spirals into tragedy. It spirals into ruin. How does that happen? We have to understand this. Anybody sitting here, you can't not listen to this and want to pay attention to how a person who is so highly regarded as a member of God's church, spiraling into tragedy, leading his country into ruin, and it's because he ignored the warning signs in his life about the truths about himself. He was self-deceived. So there's four things we're going to learn today about our sin, about our self-deception, what it is, what it looks like, why, why is it there, and how do you address it? What it is, self-deception, our sin, what it is, what's it look like, why is it there, and how do you address it? First, what is it? Verse 18 kind of sums it up in a way. Uh, the Amalekites, they were a neighboring tribe to Israel. And they were enemies of Israel. They were a terrible people, a wicked people. And God says to Saul, because of their violence, because of their wickedness, extremely violent people, as a decisive act of justice, and you see this all throughout the Bible. In fact, Jesus Christ dying on the cross is a decisive act of God's justice. So as a decisive act of justice, I want you in to engage them in battle, engage them in war. I want you to defeat them. And when you defeat them, I don't want you to leave a single person behind. I don't want you to leave a single animal alive. Defeat them all. Destroy them all. Wipe them out. Why does he say this? You see, ancient kings, they killed for power. They killed for anything they wanted, but they killed for power, and they killed for plunder, and they were slaves to money, and they were slaves to sex, and they were slaves to power. But God says, I want you to be a different type of king. My kingdom will be established on different foundations. I want you to be a just king. I want you to be a modest king. I want you to be a righteous king. I want you to be a representative of my presence and my character in all the world. What does Saul do instead? After he defeats the Amalekites, he keeps the best of the livestock. Why? Why does he do that? It's because in ancient times, there was this, this was an agrarian culture. Everything revolved around agriculture as a society. And because of that, what Saul was doing in looting the, the enemy's capital, he was taking away all their capital reserves. Essentially, what he was doing was, in taking the king of Amalek as the prisoner, I mean, this is war, what he was doing was he was taking the enemy's wealth. He was taking the enemy's power. Because if he captures this king, if he loots the plunder, it's going to make him more wealthy. It's going to make him more powerful. In fact, Saul was slowly mutating. He was becoming the very type of king that God was going up against. And, and so he disobeyed God. And by doing that, Saul was becoming violent. Saul is becoming greedy. He was becoming a slave to wealth and power. And so God says, I'm going to reject him as king. Now, you've got to notice later on, in verse 19, there's a question. Why did you not obey the instruction of the Lord? And in verse 20, Saul responds. He says, he doesn't say, well, I, I did it because of this. I, I did it because of this. I, I didn't listen to him because of this. What he says is, I did listen. I did obey. That's what he says. 
When Samuel asked him, why did you not listen to the instructions of the Lord? What the Hebrew text actually says is, why did you not listen to the voice of the Lord? And Saul says, I did listen to the voice of the Lord. Samuel comes back and says, well, you say you listened. Maybe you did listen, but you didn't really take heed. You didn't really take in. Maybe you thought you were obeying. Maybe you thought you were listening, but you didn't really take it in. You didn't embrace, you didn't own God's command. Because to listen to the voice of the Lord, to obey, is greater than sacrifice. To truly grasp what God is saying, to truly be shaped by it, to be affected by what God's saying, to be affected by what you heard, that's greater than the fat of rams. It's greater than sacrifice. That's what he says. Now, in other words, what he's saying is you can listen to God on one level. You can listen on one level. You can hear on one level, but not really hear on a deeper level. That is self-deception. Saul says, I did listen. I did. I did obey. Sin begins with a distortion of reality, a distortion of what you believe God wants for you, what God has laid out consistently in the Bible throughout centuries and centuries and centuries. Sin is to distort that. In fact, it happened all the way back in the beginning of the Garden of Eden. Way in the beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, it began with the distortion of what God had commanded And that leads to, then, deceiving other people, lies. Because what you're doing is there's this underlying distrust that resides with you. Saul's thinking this. He's saying, I mean, you want me to give up all these animals? Why would you want me to wipe out all the animals to just get rid of all this precious treasure? This is what everybody fights for. Why would you want me to give that all up? Why would you want me to give up all the wealth and, and the people Why would we just enslave these people? Why would God withhold something that is good from me? What is self-deception? It's the heart's amazing capacity to hide the reality of who you are from yourself. That's self-deception. It's the main reason why we make bad decisions that affect us for a long, long time. It's the main reason why we lie. It's the main reason why we commit evil and violence. It's sin. That's what it is. Now, what does it look like? One, it begins with ignoring your conscience. Samuel, he comes to see Saul in verse 13, and it says this, when Samuel reached him, Saul said, when Samuel reached him, so you got to understand what's going on. Samuel is approaching Saul on this journey, And as soon as Saul sees him, he comes out there and he speaks. The first thing Saul says when he comes out is, I just want you to know, Samuel, I carried out the Lord's instructions. What's going on here? His conscience is acting up. I mean, it's kind of a non sequitur. I mean, just nothing really, Samuel hadn't said a word. He doesn't even know why Samuel's showing up. He doesn't know why Samuel's approaching him, but he knows. And as Samuel comes up to him, Saul says, I just want you to know, I obeyed everything. I listened to God. He knows but he didn't really listen. And so he's self-deceived. And because he's self-deceived, he's ignoring his conscience. He's trying to deceive Samuel. Instead of coming clean, he knows, but he doesn't really know. I'm going to give you some examples. First, you had a terrible day, a really bad day. Everything went wrong all day. From the morning, 
the way you got up, the way the house is in order, your children are acting up, it's just a, a struggle just to get out of the house. And then because you're late, you hit a commute. The commute is just terrible. The traffic is terrible. There are accidents because you left later. And so because those precious minutes were lost, now you're stuck in traffic and you're going to be late to work. So you get into work late. And now because you're at work late, everything is going wrong. The way you're being perceived is wrong. You missed some meetings. And, uh, or you showed up late to a meeting, critical meetings. Your work is delayed. People are coming to you and they're pounding on you. And then you get home. There's an argument. An argument with your spouse. An argument with your parents. And you feel like quitting your job and all these things are coming down on you. So what do you do? What do you resort to? You just get online. You block everything out. Sometimes some of us on our way home, we take a pit stop over the King of Prussia and we say, I need some retail therapy, right? I mean, what do you do? Do you pray? Do you reconcile with your spouse? Do you repent? No. You go shopping. You binge. Why? Because your conscience is telling you that something is wrong. And so what do you do? You ignore it. You know, but you don't really know. Second example, uh, these days there are lots of people in the church who say they believe, who call themselves professed believers, but they're interested in dating people outside the church who absolutely clearly do not believe. And so here's this woman, and she's lonely, and she starts to date this man who is not a believer. Now, all her friends know. She knows. They want to say something, but they don't. What does she do? She hides away. She recludes. Why? Not because she doesn't know. It's because she knows. She's ignoring her conscience. Now, the third one, a third example, I, I take from a, a, another preacher. And I have to share this because every time I, I share this story, it's so riveting. Uh, but it really captures what we're trying to say here. Near the end of World War II, this is at a much bigger level. Near the end of World War II, um, the first town in Germany uh, whose concentration camp was liberated uh, was in Ordruf, Ordruf, Germany. The German guards, knowing that the Allies were on their way, to get rid of the evidence, they tried to incinerate 2,000 bodies that were systematically annihilated in these ovens that they kept. But they were caught. They were caught in the process. And it was an unbelievable sight, apparently. General, if you look it up in the internet, it's unbelievable. General George Patton, whose nickname was Blood and Guts, that was his nickname. When he went in and looked at what they were doing, they said he came out and he started vomiting. Patton heard that every night these German guards, these soldiers, would go into town and they would womanize and they would drink and they would brag about what they're doing. So he figured the people of the town, they must know. Why haven't they said anything? They must have known. So he goes into town, he's interviewing these people, and of course, many of them said, no, I have not, no idea. I don't know anything about it. What does Patton do? He says, I don't care. Whether you, do or di whether you knew or didn't know, well, I don't care if you're the mayor, I don't care if you're the mayor's wife, everybody here, tomorrow you will come out, you will dig graves for these individual bodies. You will dig individual graves for each of these people who have died, and they did. They spent the entire day 
entire town came out, spent the entire day digging graves. That night, they go back. The mayor and his wife, they hang themselves. And they left, they left a note. We didn't know, but we knew. We didn't know, but we knew. Think about this. If this modern era, the most scientific, scientifically, educationally, technologically, culturally advanced cult, uh, society in history, if this modern era is capable of this kind of atrocity, then it can't be because there's a lack of education or science or technology or culture, right? Some people have committed global atrocities. Some of these people that have committed these global atrocities, do you know that they were doing that while they were crawling to the sounds of Wagner? Do you know that? Don't you see that? And why? It's because we have an enormous capacity to hide the truth about ourselves. We have an enormous capacity to ignore the truth about ourselves. We're all magicians. You know what a magician is? A master of the art of misdirection. That's the person doing retail therapy when he should be going home reconciling with his spouse. That's the person that's the binge eater in the first example. We pull vanishing acts. We hide away from people who are going to tell us the truth. We hide away from people uh, because we want to continue these acts. That's what we do. That's the second example. In verse 13, Saul says, I carried out the Lord's instructions. Samuel, Lord bless you. I carried out the Lord's instructions. In Hebrew, what he says, I listened to the voice of the Lord. Listened. Then Samuel says in verse 14, What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears that I hear? What then is the lowing of cattle in my ears? What he's really saying, he's saying, Samuel, Samuel's saying this. He's saying, listened. You listened? Well, I listened. That's why I'm down here. And I'm listening to the voice of sheep and cattle and animals. What does Saul say? Oh, the soldiers, they brought them. In Hebrew, he doesn't even use the word soldiers. He says, they brought them. His conscience can't even allow him to be specific. He can't blame them. His conscience can't allow him to do this. What he's, he says, basically what he's saying is this. He's saying, come on, Samuel, you know how they are. Self-deception it begins with ignoring your conscience, and then it takes over with shifting blame, blame shifting. We ignore our consciences to avoid the truth of what we already know, and then we start to shift blame on other people, other circumstances. Why? It's to convince ourselves that we are okay, to ignore, that it's okay to ignore our conscience, to misdirect other people to believe the same lie, to avoid the truth about who you are, to blame shift is to concentrate, to focus on weaker circumstances. You're always going to find them. To focus on weaker people and to turn the attention, the direction uh, of blame towards them. Why? Because you're always going to find everybody here is a sinner, so it's easy to do that. It's easy to get people to try to believe your lie, to avoid the reality about your sin. That's the truth. So you have ignoring your conscience, blame shifting. The third thing, Saul says, all right, okay, okay, I did keep these animals, but I was going to sacrifice them. I was going to sacrifice them to the Lord. What's he doing? He's justifying himself. He's using his good intentions to justify himself. 
Saul says, okay, I didn't do it yet. I was going to do it. I was going to sacrifice. Someday I was going to do this. Sometime from now I was going to do this. We have lots of people uh, growing up in college. I, mean, I don't know how many people who I knew uh, when I would ask them, hey, so what, what's your major? I mean, it's, the top, it's a popular thing to ask your first and second year in college. Most people, if you're Asian, most people are going to say, well, I'm pre-med, right? I'm pre-med, pre-law. They always start out that way, right? And you ask them, at least for me growing up in college, uh, why do you want to be a doctor? It's never... I don't know, it's an old movie in the 80s called Gross Anatomy. Uh, in, a, in a med school interview, uh, Matt Modine, he sits there, and the, I guess the interview panel asks him, so why do you want to enter into our medical program? And Matt Modine, he says, and then he goes, then he smiles, and he says, because I want to be crazy rich. Not, most people don't do that. Right, that's a satire, right? Most people don't answer that. They say, I want to go on missions. I want to go, I want to, I want to be a medical missionary. That's what they say, right? Saul uses good intentions. He says, I'm about, I was about to do that. I was about to sacrifice. Samuel, we're going to have a great worship service. I've got great intentions for this. Another way to put it is religion, goodness, is too often confused. It's too often disguised as faith in the Lord. And so it becomes another way of deceiving ourselves. It becomes another way of deceiving other people about, about the truth of who we are. Now, by the way, many non-religious people look at these people in the church and they say, see, this is the reason why I can't go to church. And this is the reason why I can't trust the church. Everybody is blame-shifting. You see that? Everybody is self-justifying. And self-justification is probably the greatest contributor for our self-deception regarding our pride and our sin and our selfishness. Until you identify how your sin, friends, how your sin is working in your life. Don't look at other people's sins. Don't look at the church's flaws. The, guys, let me speak to you as a friend here, okay, just logically. The church is intended to be flawed. I don't want that to be a surprise to anybody here. The church is intended to be flawed. If it wasn't flawed, we wouldn't go to Christ. Do you understand that? There will always be a need for Christ. So don't look at the flaws of the church. Don't look at the flaws of your government. Don't look at the flaws of your professors. Don't look at, the, oh, it's my professor's fault. He's a terrible professor. Look at your sins, friends. Look at yours. Everybody here, if you do not, you will be capable of the same evils. Do you understand that? Saul says, but I did obey. And then he says, okay, okay. I didn't obey fully, but I had good intentions. I was going to sacrifice. Keith Green, uh, he's a Methodist preacher. A Methodist preacher, he was a Methodist singer. A lot of people called him a, a modern-day prophet in a way because he, he, he died in a plane uh, uh, accident. And that's how he, at a, at a younger age, uh, he sings this one song, riveting song. I'm just going to show some of the words here. To obey is greater than sacrifice. I don't need your money. I want your life. And I can't help weeping how, at how it will be if you keep on ignoring my words. 
Well, you pray to prosper and succeed, but your flesh is something that I just can't feed. To obey is greater than sacrifice. I want more than Sundays and Wednesday nights. Do you get what he's saying here, friends? What's the cause? Why is it like this? What's the cause? You have to know why we run from certain truths. Why do we run away? Why do we hide? And the answer is where Samuel says to Saul, interestingly, in verse 17, Samuel breaks it down for Saul. He says, Though you were once small in your own eyes, Saul, you were once small in your own eyes. Didn't God anoint you as king? Once you were small in your own eyes, but the Lord has made you great. Why does he say this? And the answer is in the beginning of the text. In verse 12, when Samuel's looking for Saul, Saul had already moved on. He had gone down to Carmel. And there he set up a monument in his own honor. And Samuel says, Saul, you were once small in your own eyes, but God has made you great. You were once insecure and you felt inadequate. You had such a small view of yourself. Why are you constantly trying to build wealth and family, monuments in your own honor to look big? Why are you doing that? Why did you have to keep Agag alive? Because if the king is placed under you, if you are a king and another king is put under you, you're not just a king over normal people anymore. You are now a king of kings. You have ultimate power. You're still trying to make yourself great. Don't you see that? You're still trying to look great in your own eyes. You're still trying to convince yourself that you are great. Why? Are you still so small in your own eyes that you have to make yourself look great in front of other people and look great in front of yourself to convince yourself of who you are? That's why we're so jealous of other people. Jealousy is what? An admiration of other people that becomes an idol. You admire something about somebody so much that in some ways you kind of hate them. And, and, it, and it hooks you like an idol. Something has you. Someone has you. Someone, someone has something that you need that's going to give you a sense of worth. Someone else has the looks. Someone else has the popularity. Someone else has the acceptance. Someone else has the career path. Someone else has the pedigree. Someone else has the right family, the right lifestyle. Those are all monuments, my friends. Every one of those things. And it makes us feel inferior when we lack it, when we don't have it. It's the reason why Samuel says, your arrogance is a form of idolatry. That's what he says. You are arrogant. And that arrogance is a form of idolatry. Here's what went went wrong with uh, Saul. It goes wrong with all of us. When the gospel is not central in our lives, you will be bold. You can be bold, but then you won't be humble. Or you'll be very, very humble, but then you can't be bold. That's what happens. When the gospel is not central, you're going to be bold without humility. That's going to make you very arrogant. Or you're going to be humble, but without any confidence, without any boldness. And that's, you're just going to beat yourself up. There's going to be a lot of self-loathing, self-hatred. You can be bold without humility. And that's why we need monuments in our lives. We need to build these monuments. We act superior. Why? Because we feel so inferior in our lives. But if God is the reason why you know 
you're great. God's love, God's value of you, God's honor of you, God's standing with you, behind you, for you, God's delight in you, God viewing you as his treasure, if that is your monument, you did nothing to build that. You did nothing to earn it. You did nothing to deserve it. God has given it to you. You have received it out of his grace, sheer grace, grace alone. Then you can handle any news about any truth about you. What can anybody say, true or false, about you that will destroy you? If you know that God honors you and delights in you, as if you weren't any of these things. Do you see that? Then you can handle the bad news about you, the truth about yourself, anything about yourself. Truth will not destroy you because it will never undo God's love for you, his faithfulness in your life, his goodness to you. But what if your monument to your own honor is your children? Then anything happens to your children any risk to your children. God forbid they have a slightly less life than anybody else. They have to have just as good of a life as anybody else who's great in your eyes. Friends, you are fueling. You are not helping them. You are not loving them. You are loving yourself because their greatness is your greatness. Do you see that? Their safety and their security is your safety and your security. Do you see that? This, by the way, is how you know that something is a monument in your own honor, when you can't accept the truth about yourself, and as a result, you're running and you're hiding and you're misdirecting like crazy. That's what gossip is. You know what gossip is? It's misdirecting. Because you know truths about yourself. If you knew the truth about yourself, you'd be humbled. Gossip, the very heart of gossip is what? Can you believe that these people did this? What you're saying is, I could never... I would never be capable of doing anything like that. You're, you're misdirecting. That's why we're so angry. We blame other people all the time. We justify ourselves all the time. We're so neurotic. I've known people who are absolutely miserable who come to our church. And I was told by my mentors when we first started Metro, the people that you have to be most wary of are the people who you know were never happy in other churches previously. You've got to be very wary of them, still wary of them. They come in, and they enjoy your church because it's new, and there are new people. It's a fresh start. They enjoy that church for a while, and then what happens? Their sin, which they've avoided all their lives, their misery starts to come out. And what do they do? It's the church's fault. It's the leader's fault. It's my family's fault. It's everybody's fault except themselves. You've known people like that. I know people like that. It operates at an even lower level. Think about how we drive. I, I like to tell this story because it's a simple story, but it kind of drives the point home. My friends and I, um, every year we visit Boston, and uh, I, I lived in Boston for 11 years. Boston's one of those cities where uh, you can't get around. Uh, uh, back then, we had like MapQuest and we had, like, maps and atlases, right? And you guys don't even know what that is anymore, right? Um, you, we, used, we used those things to get around. And Boston, those maps aren't helpful because uh, Boston's the only city where Boston Avenue is, in, is near Harvard and Harvard Avenue is in Boston, near Boston University. That's how it works in this city. It's a crazy city. 
And in Harvard Avenue, splits in half, and like, so you start at one end, and it kind of cuts off, and it continues in another section. And so it's really, unless you really just navigate and know your way around, it's really hard to get around the city. Now, uh, driving, we're looking for a restaurant. We're driving around. We go back and forth, back and forth. And uh, the easy thing to do, the right thing to do probably, you know, and your wife, uh, your spouse is always gracious. You know, they always say, hey, I see that guy looks like a native here. <laughs> Maybe we should just pull over and ask him where the restaurant is. Hey, he looks like someone who's been here a while. You know, they, they kind of always uh, uh, try to be gracious with you. But what do you do? You ignore and you say, oh, I could have sworn it's around here somewhere. You know, and he said, oh, well, you know, that gentleman over there looks like he lives here. You know, uh, in fact, he says, uh, I know where everything is. That's a, he's wearing a sign that says, I know where everything is in this town. You know, and you say, oh, no, but I, I could have sworn it's around here. And you kind of drive around. 15 minutes goes by. 20 minutes goes by. And you're late. You're crazy late. Right? Why do we do that? You know, why do I do that? I do that because... I traveled to many places uh, at work, in business, in career. I've been around the country. I've been around the world. Men are supposed to know how to get to places. And uh, so sin is very simple. It doesn't even look like sin in the beginning because it's so deeply rooted. Sin is so simple, and yet it's so nuanced. And so here I am. I'm driving around. I'm lost, and my wife says, let's ask for directions. What I'm hearing in my heart is what? What I'm hearing is you are not man enough to even know where you're going. That's what I'm hearing. You understand that? It's pathetic, right? It's pathetic. Even the smallest things in our lives can become monuments. Saul heard, but he didn't really hear that God delights in him. He knew, but he didn't really know that God honored him. He knew on one level, but he wasn't gripped by that. It didn't shape him. It didn't affect him. He saw it, and yet he didn't really see it, and so he was blind. He heard it, but he didn't really listen, and so he was deaf. And he was spiritually blind, and if you're spiritually blind and spiritually deaf, look what happens. Everything Saul thinks, everything he says, he's saying it to ignore his conscience, to shift blame on other people, and to justify himself. What about you? What about you? You knew. Saul knew. He didn't really know. What do you know about yourself? Saul knew he didn't really know. And because he didn't really know the good news, he could never accept the bad news about himself. If he knew the good news, if the good news is embracing you and you're embracing it, if the good news is affecting your life and affecting your heart, if the good news is shaping you and changing you, if you knew the love of God, the delight of God, the treasure of God, the value of God, the honor of God, then the truth about your sin and your flaws will not, never define you. You wouldn't need these monuments. You wouldn't need them. Work looks very different when it's not a monument in your life. 
because you, then it's possible for you to work without anxiety. Your family will look very, very different if they didn't have to be so perfect for you as you're building your monuments in your life. Building monuments are very, very difficult, very labor-intensive. Rosemary Miller, he, she's the wife and the founder of probably one of the most well-renowned Presbyterian ministers in Philadelphia who probably shaped a lot of our gospel thinking today. Rosemary Miller, who's still alive, still going on, traveling from country to country, preaching and sharing to others about the gospel, really instrumental in bringing me to a greater understanding of the gospel. Here's what she says. She writes this, I love to be in control. I'm addicted to duty. I'm addicted to order. I'm addicted to my rights. I'm addicted to my ways. I'm addicted to outward performance. I'm outwardly moral, and yet inside I'm full of anxieties, I'm full of fears, I'm full of guilt. For years I heard the words of the gospel, but I never heard the music of the gospel. Is that you? Is that you today? If God is not your honor, if the gospel is not your mon- if the gospel is not your monument, if that is not what has been built up in, in for your favor, if that is not what you see, if that is not what you behold, something else is definitely going to become your monument. And for Saul, what was it? Being successful, being a ruler. Those are all good things. None of those things were bad things. God put him there for those things. But it became his defining thing. And he did it because he felt so small in his own eyes that he had to build himself up. And it ruined him and it twisted him into violence and greed and plunder and death. Friends, he died because of that. It ruined him. How do you address it? How do you end it? How do you cure it? Samuel says, God had made you great. It, didn't, it never sinked into Saul how deeply he was loved. That's the root cause. That's the root cause of the arrogance. That's the the root cause of the building of monuments. That's the root cause of the lies. That's the self-deception. The root cause of the self-deception leading to deceive other people or trying to deceive other people. But you and I, we have such a greater resource for understanding the love of God. We have a much greater resource in understanding the love of God, something Saul never had. Centuries later, in Gethsemane, Jesus Christ, he's praying. And what does he pray? Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. In other words, I'm going to just put it very plainly for you. Jesus Christ, the King of kings, Lord of lords, Prince of peace, the heir and inheritance of heaven, and all of God's kingdom, the sustainer and the governor, the creator of the universe, the exact radiance of God, the exact representation of God says, God, I'll obey. I'll submit. You know what that cup was that he was referring to? Take this cup from me. That cup he was referring to was the cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's wrath, the full wrath of God being poured out. He's saying, he's saying Lord, take this cup away from me, yet not my will. Yours be done. I'll obey. I will drink that cup to the end. You can pour that out on me if that is your will. That means I will give it all up for you. And he did. He did it. In full, he did it. 
Jesus Christ is our resource. Hebrews chapter 10, the author writes this, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you do not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. I have come to do your will. What does that mean? Samuel says, God didn't want sacrifices. God didn't want rituals. He wanted you. God didn't want sacrifices. He wants your obedience. God didn't want sacrifices and rituals. He wants your will. He wants you to bend the knee. He wants you. Jesus Christ says, I have come to bend my knee. I have come to do your will. I will obey. And Jesus didn't obey to become holy. He was already holy. The Hebrews writer says, Jesus Christ obeyed to make us holy. Because we fail over and over. And we are just blind in our self-deception. What will unveil us? But the king who says, I will obey on their behalf. Because they did not obey. Because they are not faithful. Because they are not good. And they are given to violence and evil and tragic ruin. I want to save them. I will obey. Jesus Christ lived the life that we should live, and then he died the death that we should die. Jesus Christ did not obey to become holy. He obeyed to make us holy. We are made righteous in union with him. That's why we build monuments in the first place, because we want righteousness. You know what the word righteousness means? It means approval. We desperately want approval in our lives. We need to be told that we're okay. We crave honor. We crave glory. We crave to be treasured. That's why a lot of us are in relationships that we should not be in or in relationships longer than we should be in. And we're looking at the wrong things to build ourselves. That's what we're doing. We pay a tremendous price for that. You're paying a tremendous price for that, some of you. When Jesus Christ died, it was the perfect obedience And he delighted God. He delighted God even as he severed his relationship with God. What does that mean? Jesus Christ, the true king of kings, he had the glory. He had the power. He had the wealth. But on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, I'm forsaken. You, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, I'm forsaken. I am not approved. I'm rejected. I'm dishonored. I'm giving up my power. I'm giving up the inheritance. I'm giving up the wealth. And I've descended to the depths. Jesus Christ swallowed wholly the cup of God's wrath, and he drank it all, and he received everything that we deserved. Why? So that we could receive everything that he deserved, the honor, the glory, the delight, the treasure. That's how you know. Don't look to worldly blessings as proof that God loves you. You look to the cross, an event, a decisive act that has taken place to know that God is just and that he's so loving to his people, and that he's so gracious to his people. You are loved, utterly loved, utterly embraced. Jesus Christ is great, but he became small. Philippians chapter 2 says he emptied himself of his glory so that we who are small can be great in God's eyes. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior 
and my God. Will you plunge your insecurities and your inadequacies and your inferiorities and your labor, trying and trying and trying, your fatigue and your anxieties in the grace of God? Will you plunge those things in the grace of God and let that be your monument in God's honor? And you will honor him and you will love him. When you see how loved you are in Christ, when you see how delighted you are, Jesus Christ will become delightful to you. To the degree that you know that you are delighted in him, he will become a delight to you. Let that be your monument. You will honor him. You will love him. You will serve him in your workplaces. You will serve him in the church. You will serve him in your families. You will serve him in your relationships. The cross is the one monument that you need that you cannot build. The one monument that you need, the only one that will stand that you cannot build that will melt away your self-deception because the cross shows you who you really are. When you look at the cross, you know you cannot ignore your sin. You cannot ignore. You cannot blame someone else. You cannot look at the cross and justify yourself because you see Jesus Christ dying for you. But when you see Jesus Christ dying for you, you see his love. You see, if he was willing to sacrifice his own son for you, does he not love you? Because he loved his son. Jack Miller, great, that great preacher, Rosemary Miller's husband, used to say, all of us here at doubt at some point God's love for us, but you would never doubt God's love for his own son. And why did he send his son to die? Because of his love for you. Let that be your monument. That will melt away the self-deception. Then you can understand and grasp and accept the realities about yourself, your sin, the real truth about yourself, the real truth about God, that you are loved, that you are honored, not because of your obedience, not because of your merit, not because of your record, because of Christ's obedience and Christ's merit and Jesus' record. And he said, it is done. It is finished. The work is complete. It is over. I have come to do your will, and I did it in full. It is over. Faith is to say that I know my sin. I don't ignore it. I know it. That I know my Savior Will you study yourself? Commit to studying your sinfulness. Don't study other people's sinfulness. That's gossip. Study your sinfulness and study God's grace. It is so much more abundant. That cup overflows, my friends. That, that grace of God is so much more abundant. You put all your sins into a cup. Jesus' grace overflows. Friends, do you see that? Know your king. If anything, don't forsake Christ. Forsake your monuments. Forsake your monuments. Let's pray.